This morning we're going to continue with sermon number 11 on, called Intersections. And um, we've got two more and then we'll be done and I'm going to move on to another series. Um, I'm not sure yet exactly what that's going to be, but we're, I'm looking at a couple different things. I'm thinking about the Revelation uh, churches, talking about the, the seven churches of Revelation there. Um, so, but anyway, I want to begin this morning with this, this concept of that Christ meets us at the intersection of inadequacy. You know, some of these things that we've been talking about, I think that really can mentor or um, meet all of our needs because we all face temptation. We all face, you know, the, the worry. We all face pain. We all face those things. Um, shame was one of them. And so, this morning we're going to talk about Christ meeting us at the intersection of inadequacy. Uh, before we begin, though, I want to read uh, Psalm uh, 25, verses 4 and 5 to you today. It says this, it says, Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Not just part of the day, but all day long. And again, you know, King David expresses his desire for guidance and not just any guidance, but God's guidance. That's what he wants. That is his desire for God's guidance. For it is at the intersection of life, and this is really important, it's at the intersection of life where we most need the guidance and the instruction that only can be found in God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to meet him, we're going to meet Christ at the intersection of inadequacy. And I had this sign made up here, and I, I did share with the congregation many times, when I was taking my um, motorcycle class, the instructor basically said to us, right here, this is where a lot of accidents happen with people on motorcycles. So you have to constantly be looking behind you, beside you, in front of you, all around you, because you never know what direction danger is going to come in. And he said, so intersections were always the most difficult part when you're riding a motorcycle. And so you have to really pay attention and be very careful in which direction you go. And so this morning, we're going to meet Christ at the intersection of inadequacy. You know, I want to begin by sharing a few things with you here. One day, Charlie Brown, and this, I love Charlie Brown. I love the Peanuts cartoons. One day, Charlie Brown was talking to his friend Linus, remember Linus, about the, per, the pervasive sense of inadequacy he feels all the time. And if you've seen the cartoon, you know that that's Charlie Brown. Charlie moans, he says, you see, Linus, it all goes all the way back to the beginning. The moment I was born and set foot on the stage of life, they took one look at me and said, not right for the part. I feel bad. I feel bad for Charlie Brown. I, I love. I love him. You know his character. I think it's pretty cool. But how many of you are Saturday Night Live fans? Anybody? Anybody used to watch Saturday Night Live? You know. Okay, some of you did back in the day when, like John Bellucci and and Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin and those guys. Those were the best. Those were the best times. Today, uh, I don't like it as much. But in a in a in a popular Saturday Night Live comedy skit. There's one character that I always, I always got a kick out of him. His name was Stuart Smalley. Do you guys remember Stuart Smalley? 
He attempted to console people as they struggled with their issues and dilemmas. And one of the more popular skits was when he tried to console Michael Jordan, you know, the famous basketball player. He was, the, he was pretty famous back then on, on that day. And he was trying to console Michael Jordan, this famous basketball player, with a non-existent struggle with his athletic ability. And, and in each of the skits, a celebrity guest was assisted with advice on how to conduct a self-help program and get back on track. That was Stuart Smalley's whole thing. However, by the end of the skit, it was Stuart who was always being consoled with his own struggles with inadequacy. <laughs> he, he never seemed to feel qualified for the situation at hand. But even in his own struggles, he always closed his skit with, the, with this interesting phrase. Does anybody know it? I didn't think you would. He would always say this. He says, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> that's the way, that's why he would close it. Well, as Stuart Smalley could have said, remember this. You're adequate enough. You're clean enough. You're forgiven enough. And doggone it, Jesus loves you. Absolutely. You know, I always enjoyed that skit, but, um, you know, it, there's a, there's a story that was told. And this is, this is pretty, uh, pretty sad. But I wanted to just share it with you. It's the, it's called the book Heroic Failures. It was written by Stephen Powell in 1979. It was a book written in celebration of human inadequacy in all its forms. And he goes on to say one of my favorite stories was, it took part back in 1978. It was during the fireman's strike in England. The, the British Army took over emergency firefighting and drove the green goddess rather than the red fire engine. And it says, on, on January the 14th, the soldiers were called out by an elderly woman in South London. She, she wanted them to retrieve her cat that was stuck up in a tree. And so the soldiers arrived with impressive haste, and they were very, very clever, and they carefully rescued the cat from the tree. And so the lady was so grateful that she invited the squad of heroes in for tea. And later, as they were driving off, they were making fond farewells and, and waving enthusiastically. And they accidentally ran over the cat and killed it. <laughs> you know, they started out as heroes and they ended as failures. <laughs> but one of them I think about. Anybody hear of a guy by the name of Johnny Unitas? Oh, yeah, yeah. Johnny Unitas could have been, you know, he could have thought of that he was inadequate as he was cut from the Pittsburgh Steelers and was sent home with $10 bus fare in his pocket. You know, they said he was too skinny, he was too slow, and he did not have the arm strength needed for the NFL. Wow. Johnny never quit. You know, his first game with the Baltimore Colts, he threw an interception on his first play. He fumbled two more times during that series. But Johnny never quit. You know, in one game, he broke his nose. He had a concussion. His teeth were knocked out through the lower, his lower lip. He, you know, he told the coach, you know, he says, Coach, I've got to get back in the game. The coach said, why, Johnny? You know, Johnny said, look at the scoreboard. We are behind 
So what Unitas did, Johnny Unitas, he reached down, he picked up some mud, he packed his mouth with that, where the teeth had gone through his lip there. He packed his mouth with that mud. He got back into the huddle, and he said, just block, and we will win this game. Johnny won because his heart was in the game. They won because Johnny Unitas never quit or had any excuses for inadequacy. What a story. You know, I, I love that story with Johnny Unitas. And, and um, you know, I, I think about this one as well, you know, and I wanted to share this and we'll move on here. But I read this. It says, grandparents give their grandchildren as a way of restitution for not being the parents they thought they would or should have been. You know, it's, it's a universal impulse rooted in feelings of inadequacy. They feel about their performance as, as parents. And so what do they do? They spoil their grandkids. They spoil them like crazy. Is, is that true? Is that true, Miles? <laughs> Mason, is it true? <laughs> we do sometimes. And so anyway. But I like, I like what Ray Stedman said. Ray Stedman once said this. He said, if we will admit our inadequacies, we can have God's adequacies. You know, the greatest problem in the church is trying to do God's work with man's strength. Isn't that true? The key to Christian sufficiency is realizing that everything comes from God and nothing comes from me. It's his strength, not mine. You know, I think that inadequacy is a daunting intersection. That's for sure. You know, one of the many... Well, you know, I think it's one that many of us, sometimes we never seem to get over it our whole lives. We struggle with it. You know, we get stuck in this quicksand of our own feelings of weakness. And, 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 and though some days we almost seem like we're going to free ourselves from it, a lot of times we inevitably slide right back into it. You know, we're, we're kind of sucked into this, this vague, unrelenting thoughts and feelings. And, and I like what Arthur uh, Gail McDonald, in her book, it's called High Calling, High Privilege. She expresses this very well. You know, here's what she had to say. She said, she said, my husband and I have occasionally felt on edge of, on, on this edge of an ill-defined despair. Those were times when we felt a variety of things, a desire to either quit or run, a feeling of anger, the, the temptation to fight back at someone, you know, the sense of being used or exploited, the weakness of inadequacy, or the reality of loneliness. She goes on to say such attitudes can, can easily conspire to reduce the strongest and most gifted to a state of nothingness. Wow. You know, all of us have struggled against this, this concept of inadequacies. In, in its downward pull into this, this abyss of nothingness. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we felt inadequate over, over a long-standing habit that we have or an addiction, or maybe it's a job. Maybe it's some type of job that you're doing, or, or maybe you're, you, you face surgery that could mean the beginning of the end. Or maybe you're staying in a marriage that is unfulfilling, you know, or you live with a disability for the rest of your life. You know, those, those are, those are real things that, that a lot of people face, you know, and it seems like the list is never ending sometimes. And it's so frustrating. 
you know, the, the dark abyss of inadequacy, the feelings, it seems like it has no bottom to it. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of that scene in the movie 300. Do you remember them saying, we are Sparta? And, and the, this messenger has come to basically tell the Spartans that they better join Xerxes, King Xerxes and his army, or they're going to be annihilated. And basically that, that guy, the, the messenger, he's standing there and behind him is this big hole and it's nothing but an endless pit. And he says, we are Spartans. And he kicks that guy and that guy goes flying into that hole, that abyss. And sometimes I see myself being kicked into that abyss by Satan because he wants me to feel inadequate all the time. And maybe you have felt that way as well. Those feelings of inadequacy. And many of us have. We, we sink deep into this, this despair of grip, and it, it's hard sometimes. But sometimes our sense of inadequacy seems inseparate, inseparable from our very identity as frail and fallible human beings. You know, I think it's kind of like a parasite, you know, and it, and it feeds on our shortcomings. It really does. And I don't know, I don't know if you've ever... Uh, um, been dealing with someone that is extremely negative, but you know, a lot of times that's what happens when we feel inadequate. We get that negative vibe going for us, and we need to we need to snap out of that because we have the adequacy of God on our side. Amen. He is the one that we need to look to, and I like the example of John the Baptist. Remember John, what he said. He, I think he captured it great. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. Greater is he than me. Greater is he who's in the world, you know, he's, he's the strongest one, and we need to grasp a hold of Jesus Christ and hold on to him. And so, perhaps our understanding of this intersection issue would be enhanced if we would define by looking at the opposite of what inadequacy means. And in Webster, the word adequacy means sufficient for a specific requirement. Sufficient for a specific requirement. The idea is being capable, being qualified. So inadequate, therefore, means being insufficient, incapable, and unable. Hmm. So why does God allow us to stumble along insufficient, incapable, and and unable in a way there? Why does he allow us to do that? I'm not really sure. So maybe it's so that we might become convinced that our adequacy is not from us. That our adequacy is from him. It's like what Ray Stedman said. You know, he, he, remember what he said? He says, if we will admit our inadequacies, we can have God's adequacy in our lives. But the greatest problem of the church is trying to do God's work with our own strength. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. We, if we realize that it, it, our strength comes from God, our adequacy comes from God, and it's nothing that I can do, it's Him doing it through me. That's what's important. And so the Apostle Paul certainly became convinced for when he contemplated the eternal consequences of his ministry, 
He felt totally inadequate. Notice what it says there. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? We are, if we have the strength of the Lord. Who is inherently capable to handle such incredible responsibility? Well, no one. No one is. So where does Paul, where does his adequacy come from? Notice what it says there. If you, if you go a couple pages over there to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, notice what he says there. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who is also, who, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he tells Paul right there. Paul's talking to us. He's telling us that our adequacy comes from God. That's what it's all about. Our adequacy comes from God. So with genuine humility, what Paul does is Paul attributes his competence in ministry completely to God. That's what he does. His confidence soared because God's divine power is because of God's divine power, but never so high as he lost sight of the the sobering reality of his inadequacy without him. Paul depended upon God for everything. And like Paul, the disciples were also keenly aware of their own inadequacies. You know, particularly after being with Jesus for three years and then deserting him when he was arrested. If you remember that, they deserted him. And yet, it was over a little month later at his resurrection that Christ commissions those same timid men to make disciples of all nations. That's what he tells them to do. No group ever had a greater challenge and at the same time, no group had ever had a greater reason to feel inadequate because they had a great task before them. So let's go back. I want you to go back and we're going to discover what transformed these unschooled and unsophisticated followers into a powerful, an extremely powerful witness for the Lord, able to fulfill a commission that I think personally would be humanly possible without the strength of the Lord. Following his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples to meet him in Galilee. So if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. I want to begin with verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Consider Consider the contrast between the disciples and Jesus on that mountain. Think about it for a minute. On the one hand, you have a small band of scared, frightened disciples. They were doubting. On the other hand, you have this all-powerful, resurrected Savior 
You know, they were, they were only human, limited, unsure, moody, short-sighted, inadequate followers, not leaders. He was God's son, omniscient, omnipotent. They were men who, for the past three years, had mainly witnessed miracles. I mean, they had, they had witnessed a lot of miracles that Jesus had done, but they had not performed them. You know, they, they didn't multiply the loaves and the fishes for thousands. They simply watched. And, and I would have been amazed. Jesus had always been the one who, who wielded the, the power and he led them. But see, now things were going to change. You know, things were about to change. Notice what it says there in Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, considering how dismayed the disciples had been by the crucifixion, they were, I think they were probably undoubtedly glad to hear Jesus say these words. But his next words, however, his next words probably caused more feelings of inadequacy than they did joy. Because notice what he says there in verses 19 and 20, the first part of 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So see, the Great Commission, as this passage is called, actually has only one command, and that is to basically make disciples of all the nations, you know, to accomplish this task. However, Jesus instructed the disciples to leave this familiar, the familiarity that they had and to go, to go, to identify new converts as he, as he, as he, his followers, you know, as he followed them and, and, and they had to baptize them and, you know, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and then to feed them God's word by teaching them. But as much as their hearts burned to obey their Savior, you know, they could not escape this feeling. You know, the, these commands were beyond their human power and even Jesus' next promise, his words, their, their timeless comfort to us you know, it was still, it, I don't think it could completely erase their feelings of inadequacy because he says there, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises that when you go, your inadequacies don't matter anymore because I am adequate enough to see you through to do what you need to do, to go, make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them I am powerful enough to help you with that. The disciples probably knew that to succeed, they needed more than the company of someone who had all authority in heaven on earth. I think they were afraid. You know, they needed a transition, a a transfer of his authority to themselves. You know, for only then could the humanly impossible become possible but i think jesus knew this too so if you pick back up to you know matthew's gospel and you turn over to the book of acts 
we see what happens here. You know, here we see Jesus did more than promise the disciples his presence. He also promised a desperately needed transfer, transfusion of power beginning in chapter 1 of Luke. You know, Luke records in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Luke records Jesus' final words to the disciples before his moment of ascension into heaven. And this is what he says. Go to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 here, and in verse 8, notice what he says. He says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he tells them. You know, the disciples were going to receive the, the Holy Spirit's gift of power, the same power that they had seen work in Jesus. You know, this power strong enough to transform them into bold and sufficient and capable witnesses, even in the remotest parts of the earth. That's what they were going to do. A.B. Bruce, in his book, The Training of the Twelve, he expanded on what this power meant. He says, All the apostles were to gain the mission of the Comforter, enlightenment of mind, and enlargement of heart, sanctification of their faculties, and, and the transformation of their characters so that they could make them sharp as swords for subduing the world with the, the truth of God. These, or, or the effects of these combined, constituted the power for which Jesus directed the eleven to wait for. That's what he was asking them to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. What was the purpose of this power? Well, I truly believe that the purpose of this power was to help establish the first century church. That's what they were going to do. They were the, the first century church was about ready to be established. And I think that these gifts, these abilities that these apostles had were to help them to establish the first century church. You know, it was, it was evidently indispensable to success. You know, the world is to be evangelized. Just think about that for a minute. Isn't that what we are here for? Aren't we supposed to be evangelizing the world? And it may not be the whole world, but it'll be our world around us. The world is to be evangelized. And it's not by men invested with great degrees or lots of money or great influence, but by men who have experienced the, the this baptism of the Holy Spirit, that this this outward manifestation of the Spirit who are visibly endured with this, this divine power of wisdom and love and zeal to help establish the church. And as promised, the power was indispensable. So, so it was in its nature a, a thing of, I think, just simply waiting for it. You know, the disciples were directed to, to, to wait and, and they were, they were not to attempt to do it without it. They fully understood that the power was needed. And that power was going to come down from heaven. It wasn't going to be from them. And indeed it did. And Acts 2 records the amazing events that took place on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit descended, the disciples were empowered, and the church began. And it changed, it changed for us as well for Peter. 
because he got up on the day of Pentecost and he preached the message to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in us. And so the apostles had that power to be able to establish the church, but it was also the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have today to empower us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we receive at the occasion of our baptism to be able to go out and to witness to a world that's dying. So meeting Christ at the intersection of inadequacy is difficult for most of us because it goes completely against our nature to admit our weaknesses. Sometimes we don't want to admit our weaknesses. We may know the truth of them deep inside, but sometimes pride often prevents people from seeking help when they need it. And so we stumble along, sometimes insufficient, sometimes incapable, sometimes on unable ways, making mistakes with tragic consequences. And much of this can be avoided, however, if we remember to earnestly put into practice the following two thoughts from meeting Christ at the intersection of inadequacy. And that's this. The first one is admitting your inadequacies is the initial step towards accepting God's solution. No one has ever been helped who refused to admit there is a problem. You know, don't don't let your pride bind you to, to make the same mistakes over and over again because that's what happens to us. Rather, confess your weaknesses, you know, to, to Christ. And remember these encouraging words from the Apostle Paul. He, he tells us over in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, this is what he says. He says, but he said to, to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Notice that. In your weaknesses, his power is perfected. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me, may rest on me. Because that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, he says, then I am strong. The second is this. It's claiming Christ's power is the ultimate secret of living above the difficulties of humanity, period. You know, he, 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 knows, he knows that we are inadequate to handle temptation, to handle pain, to handle worry, to handle shame, all those things that we've talked about, all the intersections that we've dealt with in this series. And he's willing to strengthen us with the grace that we need to be adequate, to be mature, to be his witnesses, even in the remotest parts of the earth. The question is this, are we willing to depend on him for that power? You know, Many of us struggle, I think, a lot of times with, with dark feelings of inadequacy. You know, the grip is, it's almost nightmarish. You know, it pulls us towards that brink that Gail McDonald was talking about, that, that state of nothingness sometimes. And I don't know how many of you really get down on yourself about that, but remember, our, our power, our strength doesn't come from within us. It comes from, from the Lord. 
you know, a, a state that, that often results in our feeling too unworthy to pray, you know, too depressed to read God's word, too timid to share Christ with others, too worthless to do much of anything. That's what Satan wants of us. He wants to destroy you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your happiness. He wants to make you feel awful all the time. How can we be the instruments that God wants us to be if we're constantly being what Satan wants us to be? We can't. My question is, does this describe you? You know, are you feeling inadequacy? Is it driving you away from Jesus rather than to him? You know, I want you to remember these words here. In the book of John, you know, it, I think there's some, some important words here. We need to, uh, you know, honestly evaluate, you know, our, our spiritual condition. Here's what he says. In, in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, he says, he says, remain in me, remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Have you ever seen that happen where you accidentally, like we have some blueberry bushes, and, you know, you accidentally hit a branch and it breaks. And eventually the, the leaves start to die because it is no longer connected to the main vine. That's what he's talking about here. We need to remain in him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is the kind of nothingness every believer fears the most. You know, a, a spiritually dry and fruitless life because we've allowed our inadequacies to hinder our dependence on the vine. And if you have withdrawn from him, whose power is perfected in our weaknesses, then you need to take some time now to abide in Christ through prayer. You know, confess to him that, that you have this weakness. Unburden your heart with those fears of, and, and anxieties. You know, trust in him to strengthen you. And as you go forth, cultivate this attitude in yourself that was also the attitude of the Apostle Paul, where he says, therefore, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9b, there he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power, so that Christ's power may dwell in me. That's what it's all about. Remember what I shared earlier that Ray Stedman said, he said, if we will admit our inadequacies, we can have God's adequacy. The greatest problem in the church is trying to do God's work with man's strength. The key to Christian sufficiency is realizing that everything comes from God and nothing comes from me. I think that that is so true in our dependence upon the Lord. And I wanted to close with this thought here this morning. The next time... You feel inadequate, like God can't use you. Just remember this. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. They say that Leah wasn't beautiful. Joseph was abused. Moses, well, he had a stuttering problem. 
Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy, well, they were just too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Aren't you glad that I'm not Isaiah? (laughs) I'm sure you are. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job was, went bankrupt, also lost his, his family. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was, well, well, you know. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once, many times more than once. Zacchaeus, well, he was too small. Paul was too religious. And Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus, well, Lazarus was dead. And God still used him. Amen? God can use us if we will just depend upon him for, our, for, his, for his strength to be our strength. 